we hear so much about William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, William, but what about William Shakespeare's better half? And so today I'm joined by Catherine Scheil, the professor of English at the University of Minnesota, who, who has written Imagining Shakespeare's Wife, The Afterlife of Anne Hathaway. So you are the perfect person to tell us uh, uh, why Anne Hathaway was so great. But why was she so terrible when she hosted the Oscars? I know. <laughs> good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 16th year, number 817, Celebrating Anne Hathaway. This weekend is the 359th anniversary of the death of William Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway. And to commemorate the occasion, I had so much fun talking to Dr. Catherine Shile from the University of Minnesota, the world's foremost Hathaway scholar, which might actually be an overstatement, and if somebody sends me the proof, I will happily correct the record. Catherine began our conversation by explaining what drew her to Anne Hathaway as a subject for study. Well, I taught an undergraduate class called Shakespeare and After, and it was about basically um, adaptations of Shakespeare. And one of the units was to pair a biography with a work of biofiction. Um, and in that biography, Anne was depicted as really horrific. Uh, Shakespeare's marriage was described as a disastrous mistake and um, just kind of the worst, uh, you know, one of the worst uh, scenarios possible and I so I started to think what's the evidence behind that why why does this biographer think that Shakespeare was unhappily married and that this was a disastrous mistake and she dragged him to the altar etc so I started to look a little bit more into what do we actually know about Anne Hathaway um, and then when you look at those puzzle pieces you can see that she's put together in a whole variety of different ways by biographers and novelists and playwrights and so on. So I started to get really interested in how are those puzzle pieces put together and how are some of them left out and some of them foregrounded and others, you know, put in the background or kind of swept under the rug. Interesting. So it's not it's not even just about Anne Hathaway. It's about how Anne Hathaway has been portrayed and sort of right. purpose, purpose, purpose to support this great man narrative where, oh, she must have entrapped him or held him back. Right. You know, it, it's, I mean, constructions of her are are always in relation to him. So even Jermaine Greer's biography of Anne Hathaway is called Shakespeare's Wife. Wow. It's not called Anne Hathaway. And, and uh, my own book, the publisher wanted Shakespeare in the first part of the title not Anne Hathaway. So um, wow. sold more books probably, but <laughs> so some of the evidence, for example, like the epitaph on her grave, um, it's a beautiful epitaph written uh, in Latin and it dates from 1634. So she died in 1623. Um, so very close to her death. So probably one of the most accurate pieces of evidence that we have about her. And it describes her as a good mother and so great a gift, written from the point of view of a child to a mother. 
Um, that piece of evidence is often swept under the rug by various people who want to create the story of a terrible, miserable Shakespeare who couldn't wait to escape his wife. Well, why is she described as a good mother at the end of her life and so great a gift? Yeah. Um, so that that piece of evidence, I think, needs to be foregrounded. Now, if you go to Holy Trinity Church in Stratford and look at Anne's grave, you have to know that the epigraph is there. It's on a brass plaque but it's not translated in the church. So you have to go to, you know, my book on Anne Hathaway or another, you know, go to Wikipedia and find the translation of that epitaph. When you go to Trinity Church, you are also going to Stratford-upon-Avon. And if you go to New Place, their house with the increasingly new recent discoveries they're making there, come to find out New Place, it's not just the largest house in Stratford or the second largest, whatever it is. It's a business it's right he's running like they made she was a brewer she was right. she was managing people she was harvesting crops while uh while what's his name was writing his little plays in london you know so she's it feels like she's not just a home maker but a small business owner right now some people have done a various acrobatics to say well shakespeare had these two other brothers who were back at stratford and they would have been the ones running the brewing business but there's no evidence of that so you know yeah. more than likely it was Anne as a successful businesswoman and I think the estimate for new place was that there were 10 fireplaces and 20 rooms so it would she also would have been in charge of uh, various servants and you know other types of cottage industries that they found evidence for not just the brewing but maybe some sort of needlework or that type of thing and then she outlived Shakespeare you know, by seven years, right? So what was she doing from 1616 to 1623? Yeah. Just sitting around, you know, we don't really know, but, you know, presumably she was still managing that household and uh, polishing the second best bed and changing the sheets and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. How much scholarship is there about her? And when you were writing your book, how much were you able to, to discover. I mean, how much do we really know about Anne Hathaway? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, her um, again, the epitaph has her death dates and her lifespan. So we have a sense of um, when she was born and we know when she died. Um, her home, of course, still survives, Anne Hathaway's mm -hmm. cottage, and that's mm -hmm. one of the major landmarks in Stratford. So if, if people know anything about Anne Hathaway, it's the beautiful picturesque cottage with the amazing gardens. Um, her family had been land, not landowners, but they had lived in Shottery for uh, a long time. And we know that her family and the Shakespeare family knew each other. So it's not that she was necessarily an older woman who seduced a younger man, but much more likely that these were family friends. Mm. Um, and that's the way Maggie O'Farrell tells the relationship in Hamnet right, is that Shakespeare is coming to the Hathaway family home and that that's how they meet. So yeah. um, so we know that. Uh, she gets a, a bit of money from the will of the family shepherd um, entrusted to her. So whether it's a debt that she owed or um, money that the shepherd was putting in her care, that, that's not really clear, but at least suggests that she was a responsible financial person. Um, she had three children with Shakespeare. So, you know, various um, imaginary versions of Anne that try to, you know, uh, eliminate her from his life story. It's pretty hard to do that when they have three children together. 
you know, and then of course the the death of Hamnet, you know, that seminal life event um, would have affected her equally to Shakespeare. And Maggie O'Farrell does an amazing job with that scene as well in her novel. She really does. The Maggie O'Farrell novel Hamnet is 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 tremendous for so many reasons. But one of the things I love about it is that it 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 it's 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 the anti. It presents an opposite view to that of Stephen Greenblatt and other historians who present her as a scold and an entrapper and whatever. She is in Hamnet. She is very much Will's equal. Uh, not only in sort of power and status, but in sort of genius and magic and interest. Yeah. It's a remarkable book and paints a really cool picture of not only Anne, but Anne and Will together. Yeah. The other great thing about it, too, is that she has a really innovative way of giving Anne power. So usually the source of Anne's power in the relationship is her sexuality. So... Mm -hmm. Robert Nye's book, Mrs. Shakespeare, you know, that's um, all uh, num numerous bedroom scenes between the Shakespeare's and her sexual prowess is what uh, inspires his artistry. So, but in, as you say, in Hamnet, the source of her power, it's this magical kind of mystical ability to kind of commune with nature. And um, it's not her sexuality that that makes her the equal to her husband. It's more her kind of knowledge and kind of innate um, intelligence. <laughs> yeah, and all that sexual inspiration, that's just exhausting. I mean, what, whether you're giving or, or getting it, yeah. it's just exhausting. <laughs> well, that's the other problem with Anne and Shakespeare's life story, right? Because if, if his playwriting career takes place in London and that's where his creativity is inspired, um, does his creativity get its energy from his sexuality? That's that's often the the story. That that's the story of Shakespeare in Love, for example, is that his his passionate relationship with this noble woman is what inspires Romeo and Juliet and then Twelfth Night, uh, etc. But if Anne is back in Stratford and he's in London, then she's not the person who's inspiring his artistic uh what would you call it? Um Output. <laughs> yeah, output. Um, it must be a dark lady or a young boy or some sort of substitute. So that's unless he's going back and forth to Stratford and, um, you know, maybe writing some plays in New Place, for example. Yeah. What if the guy just liked to write? I mean, I know. I know. Hi, I'm Nicole Galland, author of the novels I, Iago and The Rise and Fall of Dodo, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? The Reduced Shakespeare Company will return to touring this fall of 2022, performing Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, in Rolla, Missouri on September 21st, Bloomington, Illinois on September 23rd, Jasper, Indiana on September 25th, and the Wharton Center in East Lansing, Michigan on November 9th and 10th. Check out the touring page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our Twitter feed, at Reduced, for the latest information. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Catherine Shile, the author of Imagining Shakespeare's Wife, The Afterlife of Anne Hathaway. Are we learning more things about Anne Hathaway every year? I wish. I know. 
Um, I mean, the 400th anniversary of her death is next year, so we're we're ripe for a major scholarly discovery. But I don't I don't think that's happening. Um, but I do think since I wrote the book, um, there have been some works about Anne Hathaway that have been a little bit different than what we've seen in the past. So we've talked about Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, mm-hmm. um, which gives Anne a central role. Um, and, and as you say, like in the the death scene of Hamnet really shows that as something that happens between the Shakespeare's, not just to Shakespeare himself, but also yeah. Anne at the graveside. Yeah. Um, Upstart Crow as well. You know, that um, started just as I was finishing the research to this book. So it didn't quite make it into the book. But, you know, the Anne Hathaway in that story is, is really interesting. As you know, you know, the episode, each episode ends with this this nice little domestic fireside scene between the Shakespeare's. And, and uh, Ben Nelson does this great job of leveraging Anne's kind of common sense knowledge as a source of power. Yeah, that's a really good point. And again, and you're 100 percent right. It, 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 it's a it's an appealing picture of the two of them as a couple, as opposed to um, Kenneth Branagh's film All Is True. Yeah, they're antagonistic towards each other because they're almost strangers. Because that 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 movie very much falls in line with the theory that Shakespeare went away to London and like Dick Winnington stayed away for 20 years until he came back. Right, and. And that's very much the Me Too story in All is True, right? Because Shakespeare is constantly apologizing in that film. Yeah. You know, saying, I'm sorry I wasn't here. I'm sorry I wasn't here. At least three times and maybe more. That's just the the number I have in in my head. But, you know, and then to have Judi Dench cast as Anne, that gives another weight to the role. Um, But as you say, it's not exactly a warm and fuzzy domestic scene. No, uh, and 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 it doesn't, and it gives it gives her weight and also age because there's a big difference. There's an even bigger difference between Judy Dench's age and Branna's age than there was between Anne and and Will's age. And also, in my memory of that film, which I did not care for, (laughs) um, he apologizes a lot, and she forgives him not at all. So it's just this entrenched, not dramatic, not appealing not again realistic it just didn't not even within the confines of the movie did it feel realistic and in terms of how people live their lives it also didn't feel realistic yeah yeah i mean i think upstart crow is a much more um likely scenario at least at least one that that most of us like to imagine yeah you know and that is shakespeare's the you know the the person who returns home and it's it's a place that's a little bit foreign to him but it's still a place of comfort yeah. You know, and, and Anne has a has a role in a lot of the artistic choices that he makes just based on her common sense discussions with him. Yeah. But that, of course, is a really different Shakespeare than the Shakespearean Shakespeare in love. Right. 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 Said, right. Who's not at all domestic. I said three Shakespeare's in a row there. <laughs> the Shakespeare that you see in in the film Shakespeare in Love. But that that's the young Shakespeare the Libertine, you yeah. know, where Anne, I think, is dismissed in just a couple of lines at the very beginning of the film. Um, and then the film can go on to show Shakespeare yeah. with Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, and so on. But in Upstart Crow, you know, he's not any kind of um, romantic efforts that Shakespeare has in that sitcom are disastrous. <laughs> Yeah. he's the dad the kind of fumbling dad with yeah. the daughter who has her eye rolls and yeah. you know he has a dad job list and um he's just not the libertine that he is in, in a lot of the other stories and i think maybe that's why 
uh, Anne Hathaway works so well in that plot. Right, because it's very much a domestic setting, not right. not like a young libertine uh, off off in London whose wife has to be explained away in order to get on with the story we want to tell. Right, but that's often a hard uh, story to dramatize, right? Like, what's interesting about the husband and wife who actually get along yeah. and chat in the evening over their at their fireplace? That that's not necessarily dramatically interesting, but Ben Elton finds a way to to do that. And Nora's being a writer really. Right. What a writer does is not interesting either. (laughs) It's a lot of, a lot of looking at your, well, nowadays looking at your computer screen, but presumably in his day, you know, sharpening the quill and, you know. It's interesting. Do you think that these, uh, the, these various, um, biofictional depictions of, of Anne Hathaway and Shakespeare are, are, uh, helping or inspiring more scholarship, more under greater understanding about Anne. That's a good question. I think. Um, I mean, my own view is the more the better, because one of the problems with Anne is that she's been entrenched in a couple of variations for a very long time, and until you get people imaginatively, imaginatively looking at her again, you know, it, that helps get her out of those roles. So, for example, the Shrew. You know, the kind of scolding shrew yeah. who held him back and you know was a negative influence that that's been one of the versions for a long time and then kind of conversely to that the the loving domestic helpmate who doesn't do much except you know prepare his meals and wait for him to come home yeah um, are there ways to get around those those two models so i think um i don't know if it helps us understand her better but it helps us um feel that there are multiple ways to think about her, not just one way. And I think that's the problem with biography, right? Because unless you're going to do what Graham Holderness does in The Nine Lives of Shakespeare, and that is write nine different biographies in the same book, Mm. um, you're creating a single through line, a single narrative story. And once you do that, you have to make choices. Yeah. You know, you can't really say, well, she could have been this or she could have been that. And we don't really know because that's not how biography works. Right. Even as a fact-based biographer, you are making narrative choices. Right. Yeah. Right. It's such a, that's thing- such an important point. And I've heard you make this point before, and I think it bears repeating that that how much damage Stephen Greenblatt has done Anne oh. Hathaway. Is that is that fair? Is that an overstatement? Well, I think any biography that has the huge circulation that that his does, like that, that is embedding a single narrative. Um broadly from theater practitioners to students to just general readers who seek out a biography and it's you know you almost wish biographies could be packaged with sort of warning like this is one way that these facts have been assembled with a lot of fiction um so i think that's that's the problem with biography but that was a problem with shakespeare biography from the start true you know so in nicholas rose 1709 biography and that's that's the thought of as the first one of Shakespeare, there's all kinds of fictional um, additions to that. So about the Shakespeare marriage, for example, Rose says, Shakespeare thought fit to marry. That's the way he introduces the marriage. So that since that, how does Nicholas Rowe know what Shakespeare thought? Right. But that, you know, that kind of kicked off centuries of biographers assuming that they can get into the mindset of Shakespeare. Wow. So yes. Um I think I mean Stephen Greenblatt is just the the probably 
most circulated biography these days and and thus it's the most influential one yeah. so and the narrative unfortunately of anne in that work is very negative he, will shakespeare thought fit to impregnate this woman who was 7 years right. older than he was right <laughs> right so i mean i think it's it's a problem with biography in general that you know the the packaging needs to be much more warning to reader you know <laughs> this is a a narrative or this is a story and it's a great, the better story, the better biography it is, at least according to readers, you know, you don't want to read just a list of dates and facts. That's not a biography it has to be woven together and it has to be, you know, the more compelling, the better. So it's not really a compelling story to say Shakespeare was happily married. <laughs> his wife managed a brewery back in Stratford and took care of the children and supported him throughout his career. And then he returned home and is buried next to her. That that's not a compelling. No, it's not. Story. But we, it's, it's funny we've 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 had this we've been having this conversation very recently, in fact, about the value of biofiction, and it's only yeah. occurring to me just now as we as we chat that there is something democratizing about biofiction in mm -hmm. that anybody forget don't you don't have to be a professor you don't have to have a doctorate you can write a story about Anne Hathaway and William Shakespeare or anybody and if it and if it if it, if it tries to explain the known facts great and if it doesn't who cares but mm -hmm. you can get at alternative points of view alternative theories about who these people were that in considering the various versions, you might arrive at something maybe closer to the truth than just one person's bi biographical treatment. Right, right. I mean, if you think about the second best bedline in the will, which we haven't really talked about too much, right. um, there's a story behind that line. It's an interlineated line. So it's written above the main text of the will. And it's written in a different ink than the ink used on the third page of the will. So somebody added it in. So what are the possible stories behind that? The predominant one has been, and this is the one that Stephen Greenblatt uses, but also the editor Edmund Malone from the 1790s, is that Shakespeare forgot about his wife and then dismissed her with an old bed. And it's a form of insult. Wow. So that presumes that the story behind that line is that Shakespeare wrote as well. And then someone said, oh my God, you forgot Anne. And then he said, okay, how can I add this, add something in to, you know, diss her? Mm -hmm. How about the second best bed? So there, there's one story, but you know, the will was copied. So there's another story that maybe the second best bed was a term of endearment or, you know, a kind of private term about the bed that they may have shared together. Mm -hmm. That's how it is in Carol Ann Duffy's poem about Anne. Um, and maybe the copier of the will took a break, you know, went to refill his ale, came back, thought he got the proper place and then realized, oh, shoot, I missed this phrase. Let me add it in here because Shakespeare's going to be really angry if I don't have this bed here because it's really important. So that's another story yeah. that explains the same line. So I think the thing about biofiction is that it's it's liberating because we don't know about the second best bed. And we probably will never know unless there's some major discovery of a, a very unlikely diary by Shakespeare. Uh, right. Probably not going to happen. Right. <laughs> you know? So we probably will never know what that line actually means. But the more um, multiple interpretations you can get out there for people to think about, the less and as, you know, 
uh, angry woman that trapped Shakespeare and he regretted this decision the rest of his life, the less that narrative becomes dominant. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except for one more thing I'll share with you in about 60 seconds, so stick around. Catherine Shiles' book, Imagining Shakespeare's Wife, The Afterlife of Anne Hathaway, is available everywhere, and you can follow her on Twitter at kshilemn. Then send us your Anne Hathaway fanfic via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or through a comment to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram or on our own actual website, reducedshakespeare.com or visit my website, theshakespeareance.com. Thanks as always to home brewer Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Jordan Benet. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Nicole Galland, author of Master of the Revels, a spectacular time travel novel that features William Shakespeare as a character. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please continue to stay safe, get your boosters, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 817-2451sts of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. a lot of people actually think that that's what I work on and I sound like a much more exciting person than you know they realize oh it's Shakespeare's wife (laughs) (laughs) does it go the other way too where people come looking for oh my gosh what did she wear at the uh, oh this is that I know I know oh you you wrote a whole book on this actress really in her afterlife like how did you do that like no she used to be a professor for this (laughs) no This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.